So get this, I'm minding my own business, scrolling through my newsfeed, when this pops up. Should the U.S. bomb Agrabah? Listen to this. 30% of Republicans and 19% of Democrats say that they support bombing Agrabah. And to add to that, a whopping 41% of Donald Trump supporters favor bombing Agrabah. Huh? I'm just as shocked as you are, trust me. I guess the only part that needs a bit of clarification, though, uh, which Agrabah are we talking about? I mean, there's the one that you and I know, right? Camels, caravans, carpets, somewhere in the east, right? But, well, there's also an Agrabah in China. There might be one in Syria. So, what exactly are we bombing? And most importantly, can we get Raja the Bengal Tiger? Yeah, you, you heard that right. Bengal Tiger? Out of there first? Look, it might be April Fool's here, but these are real numbers from a poll conducted by the public policy polling uh, company based out of North Carolina, in the land of the free down south. And if you've caught on, you'll know that Agrabah, which is apparently a valid target for literal bombing in the eyes of some Americans, is the magical fictional land where Aladdin takes place. If you've been keeping up with History X, you'll have heard us talk to friend of the show, Omar, about a fellow named Frank Lactin. And if you haven't checked out that two-parter, cue that up right after this. And further to Frank's story, we were talking about Arab, and by extension, quote-unquote Muslim, representation in the media. I've been thinking a lot about Aladdin since then. It was a movie that in part defined my childhood. Growing up in the early 2000s, Jasmine was the princess for a little brown girl, and really the only option when it came to princess Halloween costumes. And in 2019, Disney came out with a live-action adaptation of the film. Some say it's done leaps and bounds for representations of POC actors on screen, specifically brown faces on screens. It's not that simple, though. Before I get ahead of myself, we gotta go back and talk about Aladdin a little. And who better to explain this complicated history of Aladdin to than History X's host and producer himself? We can have a look at the scenes earlier on today as people took shelter after the first air, air raid sirens sounded. People I, had to don their gas masks and were scurrying around the streets is, trying to find This is Russell Cobb breaking in here. I, I, I'm your host of History X, but right now I am on the scene the shots shut, watching the live coverage as... Strangely empty. The bombing of Agra has begun. Were deserted. And the eerie sound of the air raid sirens. You're listening to live coverage of that on History X on the Mighty Mighty CJSR 88.5. History X is a show that brings you about the stories you won't hear in school, and it's today that we cover the bombing of Agra. Actually, April Fools. It is not a bombing of Agrabah. It is simply another episode of History X about the birth of a stereotype. We go all the way back to the origins of Aladdin. Assistant producer Sabrina Tharani brings us the story. What we owe our listeners is a trip back in time to 1992. Last time on History X, we actually talked with the, the writer and journalist Omar Muwalam. Mm-hmm. who grew up in a small town, Alberta. And in the 90s, when Aladdin came out, he really felt like it was a breakthrough. And later, he really 
developed a more complicated view of the of the film, but it did kind of represent a landmark. Um, but still, very few people really know where this cartoon depiction comes from, and it turns out it has like a a really interesting history, and you know the show's all about those very interesting histories. So, Sabrina, can you take us back? Like how how far back should we go? In, so, in tracing the origins of Disney's Aladdin. We're gonna have to go back to 1709, actually. So, so back in 1709, this, this French dude, Antoine Gaillard, translated, um, was working on a translation of a copy of A Thousand and One Nights. And he stuck this story in, the story of Aladdin, and said that he'd heard it firsthand from the Syrian storyteller when he was, you know, I'm assuming doing what uh, European gentlemen do back in the 1700s, which is travel and do little else. Um, he says that he got this original uh, version from the Syrian storyteller that was, I guess, giving just an oral rendition. Um, we've got 2018 translators that kind of can't quite tell us for sure if that's real. <laughs> Basically what we've got at this time is a French dude claiming he's got a Syrian source bringing us a story with his European colonial view of, interestingly, Asia. Wait, so, what? Yeah. So Asia? What? Asia. So but, I we, mean, like in like what part of Asia, I guess we should say, yeah. So we can't talk about Aladdin without talking about Orientalism. So uh, I've done quite a bit of reading on Orientalism and kind of the uh, pioneer of this theory is called Edward Said. And in 1978, he wrote this fantastic book and talked about Orientalism as a literary and narrative tradition that US and European writers used to portray Asia and the Middle East in one lump, just the East, East of Europe, um, as this strange, backward, impossible to understand, mystical, magical realm. Um, so in the eyes of the colonizer, it was this romantic fantasy land of violence and hypersexuality. Um, and and it wasn't just the, it went, well, it, I mean, it was Asia, but it was like at all parts of Asia. There was no real differentiation between no. um, the, mid, the, the, Middle the Middle East, East. The, the Near East, the Southeast Asia, Southern None Asia. It was all one big other that was at turns frightening and 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 grotesque and at other turns beguiling and erotic yep that's exactly it so and this was and it's interesting to note this wasn't just a, a popular cultural phenomenon saeed when he was writing he was actually responding to an actual academic discipline there were mm -hmm. departments of oriental mm -hmm. studies Mm -hmm. And there were uh, like very well known, you know, British gentlemen who were who were, you know, known as Orientalists because they were experts on the Orient as if that were just one thing. Um, so that OK, it's really it's interesting that we're talking about Orientalism because Aladdin has this, this kind of process through a French translator who may or may not have had some wild interpretation of something he had heard at some point from a Syrian guy. But it gets even more complicated than that, you're telling me? We have to yeah. go to China. Did you say we have to go to China? We got to go to China, because for whatever reason, the original story is actually set in China. Here's a uh, pantomime 
poster from actually the Grand Theater in Halifax. So this would be a stage production of Aladdin. I, I see, see pagoda. There are there are pagodas, yeah, which are Chinese. But then there are some weird European aesthetics down here. Um, lots of sun umbrellas. Some poor guy that looks like he's in a fire, and um, a, I think this is supposed to be our genie. Oh, that's the genie. That's the mm -hmm. genie. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot going on there. And it does look like one of those really retro Chinese restaurants. Yeah. That like from like the 1950s that yeah. used to really play up this sort of exotic exoticism that you could just go and hang out in for an hour or two and yeah. feel like you were a, a real cultured person. <laughs> but it also seems to be a big mishmash hodgepodge of Chinese, Middle Eastern, South Asian motifs. See, it's got very east asian aesthetics in this like it's, it's essentially a chinese story again right. and one more um very obviously chinese so initial understandings and iterations of aladdin were actually going further east than the middle east and set in china so when did it start to shift and do you have any idea why it moved further west so in terms of why it's not super easy to pin down how it was definitely through hollywood um kind of in deciding that this narrative would be more interesting if we could make it aesthetically middle east so you've got films in um the early 30s that still make it we've got british pantomime that's still like very chinese it's just actors with yellow face slowly we start to move to um like post post Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra kind of vibes where it's sort of like a, is this kind of Egyptian it's kind of Middle Eastern we just want ladies in belly dancing outfits white ladies in belly dancing outfits so these iterations of Aladdin just became kind of vehicles for sexualized women on stage and in film what really solidified it though was the 1992 Disney adaptation so Disney making this creative choice to lean fully into perhaps the Syrian uh, mythology that was linked to the history of the story. Disney's really leaned into it. And then they give us the 1992 version. And like Omar, I had, I have a complicated relationship with, Dis oh. with Disney's Aladdin as well. Go ahead. Yes, please so, tell us about that. I, I wasn't born when the movie came out. I was born two years after in 1994, but Growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, you didn't have brown princesses. You didn't have princesses of color. I mean, we had Mulan later on, which again, it's like throwing crumbs to the children of color at that point. I just had Jasmine. Uh, so Halloween rolled around. Who are you going to be? You got to be Jasmine. You can't be, you can't be Cinderella. You can't be Belle. You've got to be, you've got to be Jasmine. Um, in, in the same way as, as, um, Omar kind of touched upon it. You didn't see people that looked like you on TV or in movies. And for it to be in like a big budget, cool, innovative, critically acclaimed piece of media like Disney's Aladdin, I mean, at first you should be happy and satisfied with that, right? I, I suppose, but then there are these 
lines in the movie and some of the depictions well mm -hmm. i mean let's can you take us to this one like this one i i think this may have been cut they cut off your ear if they don't like your face it's barbaric but hey it's home and after a lot of uproar actually it did end up getting cut a year later like it it, it didn't it, it made the initial cut of the film um but again that just goes to show you that these uh tropes of the dangerous fantastical middle east are so pervasive it's also important to note that there weren't actually any middle easterners involved in the production of a movie like this disney writers illustrators voice actors who would have written something like this and just thought it's harmless right everyone knows that this is made up right it's never been hollywood has never been innocent and and and, and it's it its tropes have always had huge ramifications politically. I remember when we had Omar on and he was he was talking about the Hollywood code and how important it was not to just, it's not like they were all of a sudden enlightened and politically correct. It was that they, they actually realized that dangerous depictions of uh, certain nationalities, in a, especially in a time of war, and he was talking about World War II, could have really harmful real world implications so they used to have people who would be on set uh, or in the in the cutting room going oh you have to you have to change that that's just this depiction of this of this chinese person because the allies needed china's support mm -hmm. um and so so it's always had massive real world implications um so can you take us like in to the story and what disney does with the story like some of the main characters sure Okay, so the palace, which the Sultan lives in, looks weirdly familiar because it's basically a Taj Mahal, which adds another layer of confusion because where are we? Who knows? Um, our main characters, we've got the Sultan, who is this bumbling, chubby, stout little man who's kind of a easily persuaded man-child. Um, we've got his daughter, Princess Jasmine, who's way too hot to be a princess in a Disney film for children. Exaggeratedly sexualized, <laughs> very curvy. Um, she's stuck in this patriarchal, oppressive society. She just wants to be free to love who she wants, but she can't because the kingdom is backwards and doesn't let women be women. Girls can't be girls in Agrabah. <laughs> they are under the uh, rule of their male family members um can i just say i'm getting like flashes of pocahontas oh yeah yeah pocahontas really really outrightly enables the white savior complex um aladdin does it in a really subversive way so it's a very or not subversive a very covert way aladdin does this yeah. um so we'll, we'll we'll touch on the villain as well jafar yeah, sure. He's okay. gaunt, he's terrifying. Um, 
Does he have resting villain face? They would 100% cast Frank Lactine. I bet if they if they had a live action at that time, it would have it would have had to have been Frank Lactine. If you compare them side by side, uh, which I did, it was a little jarring. The citizens of Agrabah, the subjects rather, are these terrifying sword singing sword swinging barbarians, hypersexualized belly dancers. We've got um, uh, merchants with very exaggerated Semitic features that play up the whole cheap and money-hungry uh, trope. Then we've got our two kind of stars of the film. We have Aladdin and the genie. the west in the old bazaar hey you let us through it's a bright new star oh come be the first on your block to meet his eye make way here he comes ring bells bang the drum are you gonna love this guy prince ali fabulous he ali ababwa genuflect show some respect down the money aladdin who's this kind of like street rat kid um his little monkey friend of and uh, the genie. Aladdin and the genie are both coded very American. The way they speak is not at all accented like the other characters. <laughs> the way they behave, the way they look, the way Aladdin is drawn. If you just kind of lightened the coloring a little bit, he'd pass for any other white Disney prince. Um, whereas at least Jasmine's, they've given her kind of a typical quote-unquote Middle Eastern eye, which is slightly more almond, I suppose, as opposed to the traditional Disney Bambi eye. But Aladdin the genie, 100% Yankee-coded. It's just a couple of, couple of good old American boys in the Middle East, which really helps with this kind of like othering of the bad guy from the good guy. So hence the kind of more like covert way of employing this sort of like I see. White savior narrative because I see, I see. So because they're they're, it sounds like he's kind of an outsider in yeah. this society again, yeah. yearn, yearning to be free, um, mm -hmm. in an oppressive, authoritarian society that um, is ruled by by a bumbling uh, authoritarian figure, um, you know. Um, here's okay here's another thing i'm getting flashes of and i'm just getting flashes of this because it's been ages since i saw i saw the movie but i'm just thinking about like the early to mid 90s and living through that period and that was the first gulf war i remember it very well because what was very a popular rhetorical trope during that gulf war and then the next gulf war was that the United States wasn't getting involved because it wanted to go conquer uh, a, a another society. No, no, no. Actually, it was doing it to liberate, to free the oppressed people of Iraq. Like they were living under the thumb of an authoritarian backwards ruler. And mm -hmm. we were just doing this to free them. Um, and I wonder if that is kind of echoed, if those themes are kind of echoed in Aladdin. What do you think? Or is that a stretch? No, I think I think it's definitely present, and that just speaks to like the pervasive nature of these of these kinds of tropes. They really embody it with Jasmine, who is constantly being either you know uh, 
trapped by her father and her father's desire to marry her off or then afterwards we've got her kind of trapped physically trapped and handcuffed by Jafar it really who's the only person that will save her is our um, American coded hero interesting I mean it's it's so it's so crazy because that's the way those both of those wars were sold to the American public uh you know that 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 there were wars of liberation and Mm -hmm. the media the the mediatization of especially the second one of the American troops rolling into Baghdad and and people you know waving American flags and toppling the statue of Saddam Hussein it was like oh this is this is they've just been sitting around waiting for America to roll up into Baghdad and set everyone free. And it was just going to be so easy. I wonder about Hollywood because Hollywood has always been complicit, shall we say, in American neo-colonialism uh, from, from the 1930s all the way to the 1990s. Oh. Let's, let's, take, let's, let's shift gears before we run out of time here and talk a little bit about uh, was it the two, 2019 mm-hmm. Aladdin? Okay. You are listening to History X, the show about what they didn't teach you in school. I am your host, Dr. Russell Cobb. Today's show is produced by Sabrina Therani, who brings you the story of the birth of a stereotype. We're drilling down into the story of Aladdin. Not just that Aladdin, but the original Aladdin where all the trouble came from in the first place. Now back to the show. So there was a 2019 version of Aladdin that was fraught with criticism. Uh, why? What was, what was the subject of, of the debate around the remake? So first off, as soon as we found out there was going to be a live action remake of Aladdin, before the trailer, before any casting announcements, it already was weighed down with the baggage of the 1992 version. Disney's been doing this thing where they uh, remake their films, which we've seen in the past. They've done Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, et cetera, and try, even Dumbo, um, try to rectify issues that people have risen. We get to Aladdin, we have to make it inclusive. We absolutely cannot have the barbarian line this time. We need to have actors of color everywhere. That's non-negotiable. That being said, um, they first announced that Guy Ritchie would be directing it. Then we get the announcement or the, the rumors that were later confirmed that Disney and Guy Ritchie were having trouble finding brown people that could sing to play Aladdin and Jasmine, um, which is weird. <laughs> 2000 screen tests. Uh, it's Disney. Disney's got so much capital, so much reach. They could have held auditions anywhere they had wanted and found good candidates to play Aladdin and Jasmine. Um, they ended up settling on Mina Masood for Aladdin, who is actually ethnically Egyptian um, and Canadian, which is cool. Um, and Naomi Scott for Jasmine, who has caused some controversy as well because she's a light-skinned biracial woman can we get to to jafar because i've yeah. been i just did a quick google on on on, on jafar and uh it when it, google autofill was like 
hot new hot, Jafar. Hot Jafar. They gave us hot Jafar. If you look at Jafar the 92 cartoon, like we've seen in, um, it perpetuates a really negative image of what a scary Arab is or what a, uh, a, a very Arab villain looks like. So instead, they just gave us a very hot Arab and we're like, Jafar, um, which in some ways was kind of an improvement. Um, they cast an actual Arab person and they didn't cast him to look exaggeratedly scary Muslim, quote unquote. And of course, then we have we have Will Smith as the uh, as the genie. And there's something to be said, too, about <laughs> the consistent American coding of Aladdin and um, and the genie, which happened as well. They gave Jafar a bit of an accent. Will Smith sounds like Will Smith. It sounds like they're they're having people specifically do some kind of accent. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, except for except for Will Smith, again the yeah. American Liberator. The film made some headway in that it did attempt to make these characters a little bit more three dimensional. They tried to fix Jasmine by making her smart, which is a, again a choice because they never implied Jasmine to be anything other than just a des- desiring to be independent in the 1992 version but in this version they have a whole character arc where she's she's desperate to become the next sultan instead of getting married off and her husband becoming the sultan so the kind of happy ending of the film is um her father deciding to change the laws of agraba so that his daughter can become a ruler if you haven't watched it yet, you won't be watching it now. I can promise that. <laughs> that's, 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 that's true. I can say for all the things that we've talked about, uh, I've, I've, I'm learning a lot, but I, I am not any more tempted to watch to watch the movie than I was. Can Aladdin ever be redeemed? I would wager a guess as to no and say no. It, it, I don't think that a film that's, based on a story that is inherently racist and inherently orientalist can be redeemed. There's no amount of fixing that Disney could have done in 2019 to make this film quote unquote better. Because to make it better, you would have just had to make a different film. It is great to see people like you on screen. It was nice to see Mina and Naomi and all of the um, extras in the film the entire cast, just seeing a sea of people that kind of looked like you, like you could belong in that sea of, of extras in a big budget Disney film. There is something nice and I'll go ahead and say there's something Disney magic about it to kind of feel included. But that inclusion is so hollow when you step back and look at the film itself. The most visible vehicle for representation in not just North America, but probably the entire world, is still Hollywood and a subset of Hollywood being Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, and Disney has this this very restricted set of narratives that it chooses to produce to the world, many of them of really problematic origins. Mm-hmm. And so when you expand, when you expand that canon or you make that canon like more representational of the actual people in the world, it seems like a step forward, but it's not, it's not a revolution. Like it's still, you're still stuck with the same stuff. That's exactly it. And I mean, if you've got a production cast or a production team rather that is 
predominantly white, you end up with films that don't really do much like Aladdin or are just a complete misrepresentation of, of the culture they're trying to represent. Who is Aladdin? Is Aladdin Chinese? Is he generic Middle Eastern? There are some claims that the story came from India. Is he, is he South Asian? How do you reconcile that with what you're seeing on screen too? There would be there would be no winning essentially with the yeah. narrative of representation with film like Aladdin. Did you still see it? I one hundred percent saw it in theater. Do you think it's possible to make any kind of progress through representation, just increasing representation of people of color? I think it's possible. What really needs to be done then is is the dismantling of those racist power structures. That just means more executives of color in the room, more directors of color in the room, more writers of color in the room. We've got tons of actors of color that just can't find employment because the narratives aren't there for them. The stories and the characters are not written for them. We can take the um, case study of Crazy Rich Asians as an example of successful representation on screen. While it didn't please everyone because no film will ever do that, it provided an opportunity for young Asians around the world to see people like themselves in a really traditional rom-com format that still kind of highlighted and respected the traditional values and, and beautiful culture of, of, of the populations represented on screen. It's just that took having an Asian writer, an Asian director, and a heavily involved Asian cast to get it. We interrupt History X to bring you in a special news bulletin. We're getting reports right now. And the eerie sound of We're the air raid sirens. Hearing the air raids, sirens beginning. People are taking the cover. streets. It was noticeable that there was an awful lot of extra security around the city. It's it's uh, it's the bombing of Agora, and it's also April Fool's. So I hope you enjoyed that. This is History X, the show about what they didn't teach you in school on the mighty mighty CGSR eighty eight point five FM. Take care.